Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are uh, wanting to speak to us tonight. Lord, we're approaching uh, in reverence and in awe, uh, but also in, in, in joy and knowing that not only do you want to speak to us, but you've created the way to speak to us. God, you've, you've brought us near and, and saved us so that we can uh, not just know that we're judged, but know that we're loved. And so we thank you, God. And we pray that you would just move in our hearts tonight in a special and fresh way. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. So on Wednesday nights, we go through the Bible. Uh, we're shooting to 52 weeks and 66 books. So we're kind of ganging up some of the shorter books. Hence, tonight we are shooting for three books of the Bible. We'll see what happens. Uh, but we're going to try and go through Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. And so these are all three books in uh, what's called the Minor Prophets. Um, we've said it before, but we'll say it again because it's worth repeating. The Old Testament's broken up into a couple different chunks. You've got the, what's sometimes called the Pentateuch or the Torah. It's, it's the first five books. And then you have the histories. And then you have the poetry, which would include Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomons. And then you have the major prophets. And then you get into the minor prophets. And they're not minor because they're inferior. They're minor because they're shorter. And so tonight we find ourselves in the midst of the minor prophets prophets. And uh, they're sort of the, they're in a sense kind of the hidden gem of the scriptures because uh, nobody reads them, nobody teaches on them, nobody talks about them, but they're just, and, and we sort of know that you should read through them once in your life. Like it's sort of a Christian-y thing to do. So that way you can say, I read through the whole Bible. But um, a lot of times we live like they have no application, which is uh, a travesty because they are loaded with all kinds of insights into the nature of God and into the holiness of the Lord and the Lord's plan for the church, the Lord's plan for Israel as a nation and the Israelite people. Uh, we get to see prophecies that have been fulfilled, prophecies that we are looking forward to. So they're an incredible chunk of scripture. It just takes a little bit of work because every three to seven, eight, nine chapters, you're in a new book. And so you got to sort of reorient and say, okay, where am I? You know, who's writing? So yes, it's not like a brainless exercise to read it, but you should never read the scriptures as if it's a brainless exercise because it's the voice of God speaking to you. And so we read it, uh, whether it's here or Ephesians or Genesis, we read it as if the Lord wants to speak to us. So that being said, tonight in our overview, we are at the book of Joel. Joel chapter 1 verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. That right there is everything we know about Joel. That's the entire and complete summary. We know that his name is Joel and his dad's name is Pethuel. And, and that pretty much sums it up. Uh, so if, if we want to do a little bit more digging, scholars have kind of looked at like what are some of the phrases that he uses and, and you know, when would these phrases have been in use in different points of history. And so probably Joel is somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 years before Christ. But that's a guess. Um, if that's the case, that would make him the oldest written prophet in the scriptures. The oldest prophet to write down his prophecies. And so, um, so that's just, I think it's sort of helpful to give us a little bit of context. This is earlier on in Israel's history. Um, 
But he starts, so he's, he's going to deliver a judgment from the Lord, all right? So chapter 1, verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Are you picking up a theme here? The Lord is warning the people, because of your disobedience, there's a consequence coming. What's the consequence? The locusts are coming. Locusts uh, are hard for us to appreciate because we don't live in an agricultural society in the same way that the ancient world did. Uh, but we have documentation throughout history, different parts of the world have had plagues of locusts, and it's absolutely devastating. They eat anything that is green, and so they will wipe out square miles of vegetation, just strip it bare. And uh, so the Lord is telling them, these locusts are coming. And they are going to destroy your land. And it's because of your disobedience. Now, in the book of Joel, uh, we've said this before. What the heck? We say a lot of things before. That doesn't change whether or not we should say them again. Unless they're stupid things, in which case we shouldn't say them again. But we've said this before. Uh, sometimes when we look at, a pro- oftentimes when we look at prophecies in the scripture, we see a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. We see like, oh yeah, this was fulfilled really here, but it's also going to be fulfilled here. And, um, and sometimes it's like, I heard a pastor say one time, it's like when you're looking at a map, if you're using a paper map, and you're planning a road trip, and you look, and there's this blue line across the map. What is that? Probably. It's probably a river. And the road that you're on, uh, there's like a little gray line that goes across the blue line. And you look and you say, that's probably a bridge, right? It could be a dam. It's probably a bridge. We're going to say, you know, there's kind of a, a symbol here is telling us there's a piece of information coming. Well, we're driving down the road and we say, okay, it looks like we're coming to like, you know, we're in the mountain, there's another mountain, and there's a major ravine. So I'm guessing we're going to go across a bridge to cross this river that we can now sort of see in our periphery. And, and it's like, I'm pretty positive we're coming to a bridge. Yep, you round the bend. That's a bridge. It's coming. But what kind of bridge is it? Well, I think it kind of looks, I'm I'm guessing it's steel and concrete, but I can't quite tell what construction method it is. Then you drive on the bridge and you say, yeah, this is definitely a bridge, right? This is way bridgey. It looks like it's a suspension bridge. It's whatever else. You drive past it and you look back and you say, that was absolutely a steel suspension bridge on a concrete you know, on concrete piers, looks like it's structurally sound. Looking back, you can say, duh, that little gray line across the blue line was a bridge, right? Looking forward, we say, I'm pretty sure that's a bridge. And so we're going to see this in a couple different spots tonight. We're really going to see it throughout the whole scripture. When we see prophecies, we can say, I'm pretty sure I know what that is. Sometimes we, as it gets closer, we say, Oh, it's a little more nuanced than I thought, right? So the locusts here become a catalyst in this prophecy. Because what the Lord is describing is an actual, literal event, but he's also using them as a symbol. And so they're going to become really two separate and distinct prophecies on top of that. So the locusts are a plague of locusts. Literal grasshopper bugs, right? And it's an actual swarm eating their crops. They also become a prophecy about the Assyrian Empire because the Assyrian Empire would sweep down and carry off the northern nation of Israel really in a very similar way to the locusts and they're also in a sense uh, probably uh, a catalyst for eventually down the road what hasn't happened yet is 
then there's a northern army, probably Russia, that's going to invade Israel. And the Lord is going to deal with them. And, uh, and so it's sort of this multi-layered prophecy. And if God is outside time, it makes perfect sense. Right? Because we say, well, no, that's three separate events. That's three. God says, no, I'm dealing with my people. Right? And if time is beneath God's power, then that's not, it's no stretch. That's not God being confusing. That's just God being God. And so he's describing this plague of locusts. Um, and so he's saying, basically, here's the deal. You guys have sinned against the Lord. Judgment's coming. Chapter 2. Uh, we're going to jump to chapter 2, verse 10. Before them, he's describing the locusts, but he's also, in a sense, right, he's also describing what's coming. He's describing the locusts, but he's describing the Assyrian army and eventually the Russian army. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is great indeed, and very awesome, and who can endure it? So there's this army coming, and the Lord says, but I'm still uttering my voice before my army. Right? There's judgment coming, but who's still in charge here? The Lord. There's judgment coming, but who's lost control of the reins? The Lord has not, right? The Lord is still in control. Even when things look like the world is falling apart, the Lord is still in control. His camp is very great, right there in verse 11. So verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Verse 13, And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting in evil. God says there's an army coming that's part of my judgment to discipline you for your ungodliness. So here's what you need to do. Repent. Tear your hearts. Don't tear your clothes. Don't give me outward signs of religion. Don't give me demonstrations of what you think I'm going to go for. Repent. Pray and ask for forgiveness. Ask me for mercy and let the reflection of your heart demonstrate an actual change. Let your actions demonstrate a change of heart. Actions are never a cover. They shouldn't be, right? They should be a reflection of what's actually happening in our heart. So religious expressions, right? Things like going to church and, and doing and, you know, singing worship and all that, that's great if it's a reflection, not if it's a covering, right? If it's a reflection, what we're doing before the Lord publicly should be a reflection of what we're doing before the Lord privately, right? And so the Lord is saying, hey, it is not time to give me these, you know, don't tear your clothes like, oh, this is so grievous or whatever. No, no, tear your hearts. You should have broken hearts regarding your sin. I don't want broken clothes. I want broken hearts. I want people who are desperate for mercy because at that point is when the Lord is so ready to move in and forgive. And then he goes on, um... Uh, verse 15, he says of chapter 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Who are we going to get for, if we're going to pray for mercy, who do we get? The congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. We're going to get the old people and we're going to get the young people. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. He says, it doesn't matter what you are doing. It doesn't matter if you just got married. You got bigger issues. You come and you repent and you pray for mercy. 
It does not matter who you are, what you're doing. You need the forgiveness of the Lord because His army is coming. The judgment is coming. And so let the priest weep and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach. And don't make us a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where, where is their God? He says, Call to me and ask me to step in for my sake. All right? So the Lord is saying, Judgment is coming. Disobedience always brings judgment, always brings consequences. This will be, we live in a cause and effect universe. If you walk contrary to the word of God, you will reap the consequences of walking contrary to the word of God. And so what do you do when you've been walking contrary to the word of God? You repent. You turn. You, you bring yourself into the presence of the Lord and you say, God, I need your mercy. And what does the Lord do? He says, here it is. He says, here it is. Now you can still, so you can be forgiven for anything you do. There are still consequences. If you choose to violate the word of God, you can absolutely be forgiven. You will still bear the consequences because it is still a cause and effect universe. So the Lord is offering to deliver them in very much a big picture context, but there are still going to be ripple effects and consequences of their disobedience. But verse 18, and this is really a response to verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Okay, the day of the Lord is a reference that basically in context of Scripture means the time of the great tribulation. There's a couple other references where it can mean a couple different things, but by and large, and specifically in the book of Joel, we're looking at the time of the great tribulation. The Jewish people look to the day of the Lord as, hey, this is when the Lord will judge all of our loser neighbors. And the Lord sees it as, hey, this is when I'm going to judge sin. And it doesn't matter at that point whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, what matters is whether or not you are under the righteousness of God or not. So the day of the Lord is coming. And so verse 18 is the response to that. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. And, well, we'll stop there, or else we'll run out of time. But he says, All right, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to remove the northern army. Well, Again, we're looking at prophecy as something that God sees from outside of time. So we don't know. We don't have a written account of this locust plague, okay? But the locust pharaoh could have come from the north. The Assyrian army very much came from the north. And what happened in time to the Assyrian army? The Lord got rid of them. He judged them for their sin. In Ezekiel 38, we're told that eventually, at some point in time, the Russian army is going to come against Israel. And what's the Lord going to do? In Ezekiel 39, he's going to judge the Russian army. He's going to remove it. He's going to defend Israel for his name's sake. And so, what's the Lord going to do? He will be zealous for his land. We're going to see this over and over again tonight. The Lord is zealous for the people of Israel. Right? The people of Israel have a special relationship with the Lord. They still have to come and acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior. They still have to have the blood of Jesus Christ take away their sins. But the Lord has a very special place in his heart for the nation of Israel, and he takes it very seriously when anybody messes with them. So, uh, so he's prophesying a judgment. He's saying, hey, your judgment's coming. Repent. I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to remove the northern army far from you. 
And he's and then uh, and then verse twenty five. This is one of the one of the great verses uh, in Joel. Really, it's one of the great verses in the scriptures. He says, "Then I will make up for you." The years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. God says, I'm going to make up everything that you lost from the locust. And, sometimes, and I think this is important because we can waste a lot of life, right? We can, we can waste uh, an awful lot of life doing our own thing. And, that doesn't, and when, we can, when we repent, we come back to the Lord. The Lord forgives us. And there are, you know, there are consequences that sometimes come from that. Right? But what is the Lord able to do? He's able to make up for the years that the locust ate. The Lord doesn't just say, let's wipe the slate clean and start over. He says, no, 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 no. I'm going to work beyond what you can imagine. I'm going to do something greater than what you can fathom. I'm going to restore everything you lost in your time of rebellion, in your time of sin. And I, I mean, you think about that, right? Think, you know, just imagine the mercy and the grace of God to say, not only will I save you, not only will I give you a fresh start, I will do more than that. I'm going to make up for every stupid thing you've ever done in your life. I'm going to undo it. I'm going to overdo it, right? I'm going to go above and beyond all that you can ask or think. And then verse 28, uh, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, it says it will come about after this. Uh, depending on your translation or how you read Hebrew or whatever, it could say it will come about in the last days. And in Acts 2, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. All the disciples are speaking in tongues and everybody's saying, what's going on? And Peter says, here's what's going on. The Lord is fulfilling his word. Peter says, Peter quotes this verse. He says, this is that we are watching the fulfillment of the word of God in our lifetime. Now here's what that means. That means as Christians, we are living in the last days. Peter stood up and, and sometimes people get all, you know, like, oh, you can't say that, whatever. No, you can't say that because Peter said it on the day of Pentecost. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. So you absolutely can say we are living in the last days. And you absolutely should say and live and expect that we are living in the last days. Because the mark of the last days is that the Lord will pour out his spirit on all mankind. In the book of Ephesians, Paul describes the Holy Spirit as, in a sense, the earnest money. The Holy Spirit is the promise of God in our lives today, that all of the righteousness of Christ that we've read about, all of the, the fullness of relationship that we're going to get to have someday, the Holy Spirit is the earnest money to demonstrate to us that that's real. I mean, you think about it, and, and, it, and think about how encouraging that is, because what do we believe as Christians? Just think about this for a second. We believe in a God who you cannot experience with your five senses, right? None of us have seen, tasted, touched, heard, or done that other one, whatever it is, I'm going blank. God. Right? We know, none of us have smelled God. I heard a guy, I knew, I met a guy once who claimed that he had, but I don't believe him. Um, but uh, we don't experience God with our five senses, right? We, we, I mean, sometimes you think about Christianity is kind of a ridiculous religion on its face, right? We have this book that's thousands of years old, 
that tells us what happened and what's going to happen. And we believe that someday our God is going to come out of the sky. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives in Israel. He's going to split the mountain in two. He's going to destroy all the armies of the world. He's going to tie up all the forces of evil for a thousand years, release them again, and then destroy the heavens and the earth and make a new heavens and earth and start over. It's ridiculous. And the Lord says, tell you what, let me give you some earnest money. Let me demonstrate that I am dead serious. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you of myself God dwelling in your heart so that you will experience God. Not so that you will know about God, so that you will know God, so that you will get the chance on this earth to experience a relationship with me as a promise of the, the full relationship that's coming. We could have a pretty amazing relationship with the Lord here on earth. And it's the down payment, right? What's it like when you get the real thing? What's it like when you really get to experience God in the fullest sense, when, when it is not constantly the Holy Spirit waging war with all of your sinful desires? What happens when all those desires are gone and your entire being is consumed with the desire to know and please God, Right? I have no idea, and I can't wait to find out. But in the meantime, I have the promise of God right here from the book of Joel, fulfilled in the book of Acts, and carrying on to today, right? That the Holy Spirit has come upon us. And he says he's going to come upon your old men, your young men, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants. Everyone has access to the Holy Spirit. Everyone has access to a relationship with the Lord. This is no longer a racial religion. You no longer have to be Jewish to experience the Lord. You just have to ask. And so chapter 3 uh, just wraps up with a little bit of judgment, uh, describing some more judgment, and then describing the restoration of Israel during the millennial kingdom, once Jesus comes back to earth and sets up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. That brings us to the book of Amos. Amos uh, chapter 1 verse 1 says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned, envisioned concerning Israel in the last days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So, we get a little more context for Amos. We can pin him down to a pretty specific place in time. And so he gives us a bunch of prophecies. The Lord is judging, he's issuing judgment on a lot of nations in Amos. Um, and so it's a little bit poetic. He says, for three transgressions and for four. And he's using his poetic imagery to drive home the point of like, you guys deserve my judgment for three reasons. Actually, you deserve it for four reasons. And so he judges the city of Damascus and the region of Gaza and, and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. He says, I will judge Judah because they rejected my word. The Lord takes his word seriously. In verse 6, he describes the judgment against the nation of Israel, the, the northern kingdom. And he says, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. The Lord takes his word very seriously. The Lord takes the abuse of the poor very seriously. He always has and he always will. And so we're moving through just... Uh, sort of the judgment of God. Chapter 3, he describes, basically says, you, Israel should have known better. Judah should have known better. You had my word. You had the prophets. You, you know, basically says, the other nations are going to be judged because of their wickedness, but you especially should have known. You were given the opportunity and you wasted it. And the scripture is very clear. When God gives us an opportunity, he expects us 
to take that seriously. He expects us to steward that responsibly. So if you're really any one of us, if we're here tonight, we have a responsibility to respond to the words of Joel, to the words of Amos. We have a responsibility if we understand, you know, that the Holy Spirit was given as a promise. We have a responsibility to then seek the Holy Spirit in our lives. If we understand that the Lord takes His word seriously, then we have a responsibility to take the word of God seriously. So chapter 4 of Amos... He describes basically some of the desolation that's going to come. But um, I want to read it because starting in verse 6, we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter because it's really important for us to understand the judgment of God in context of the patience of God. Because if we're not careful, we blow through the mind of prophets to read about all these judgments and destruction and we think, wow, God is on edge. But here's what he says in verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Cleanness of teeth in an ancient world basically means you don't have food. If your teeth are clean, it's because you're not eating. And yet, you've not returned to me. Verse 7, Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. And then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up so two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water but would not be satisfied yet you have not returned to me declares the Lord so he says first of all I let you guys run out of food but you didn't return to me then I let you experience a drought but you didn't return to me verse 9 I smote you with scorching wind and mildew and the caterpillar was devouring your gardens and vineyards and fig trees and olive trees yet you haven't returned to me the crops that could survive the drought I let parasites eat them, but you didn't return to me. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. Uh, I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camps rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You guys experienced the same viruses that killed your animals and the same you know, destruction that, that killed your young men as Egypt, but you didn't return to me. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I totally let you be conquered and you still haven't returned to me. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Understand the judgment of God is always tempered with the patience of God. Right? You can read this real fast and say, wow, God was just blowing through him. No, no, no. God did one thing as a warning. And they ignored it. So he did one more thing as a warning. And they ignored it. And he did one more thing as a warning. And they ignored it. And he goes through this whole list. And then at the end he says, okay, you know what? Now you're going to have to meet me. You're going to have to meet me face to face. You're going to have to experience my holiness. And then you're going to have to acknowledge what you should have acknowledged all the way back at the beginning. Because the Lord is still holy. No matter how long we defy him, no matter how long we flaunt his word, he's still holy. And so don't misunderstand the judgment of God as this, you know, short-fused old guy. No, no, this is long-suffering. This is patience. This is, these people are blockheads. And I am giving them every opportunity to return to me, and they are still not returning to me. And, so I'm just, and that's important for us to remember because we, you know, we look at Revelation and we think, wow, that is so intense. How could God be that harsh? And we realize, and then we have to step back and say, no, 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 no. That is after warning upon warning upon warning. By the time the Great Tribulation ends, there will have been two witnesses 
who declared the gospel for three and a half years in Jerusalem. There will be 144,000 evangelists who the Lord sends out throughout the earth. There will be an angel who comes down from the sky and declares the gospel to every single human being. And it says, there will still be men who harden their hearts. And for those people, it is not that they had no choice. It's not that they had no options. It's that they refused and the Lord will finally say at the end of the Great Tribulation, okay, now you need to meet me. And at that point, they will repent, but it will have been too late. And that's not the cruelty of God. That's the righteousness of God. That's the mercy of God. We can never understand the judgment of God without understanding it connected to his mercy. And so I think that's just important as we're reading through the minor prophets to not lose sight of that. We're reading about the judgments of God, but really what we're reading is the demonstration of God's mercy. And so chapter 4, that's that. Chapter 5 and 6, he's describing more judgment. Chapter 7 um, is one of my, it's probably my, got my favorite verse in the book of Amos. Chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 10, basically one of the false high priests goes to the king of Israel and says, Amos is completely, uh, he's lying to all of us, he's deceiving us, he's giving us all these false prophecies, right? And he basically tells Amos, you have no business here. You, you shouldn't be doing any of this. And Amos, in verse 14 of chapter 7, then Amos replied to Amaziah, that's the false priest, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. He tells Amos, you have no business here. And Amos says, dude, you have no idea. I have no business here. I'm not a prophet. My dad's not a prophet. I'm a shepherd and a fig picker. And I was pretty good at both of them until the Lord said, you go prophesy. And I like that, right? Because, you know, I, I, I had a guy last week. He asked me, he goes, so are you on staff at your church? And I kind of like that question and I always hate that question because there's not an answer to that, right? I'm like, well, first of all, there's not a single person on paid staff at our church. So we don't have staff at our church. But second of all, no, I don't even know what I am, right? I can describe to you what I do at our church better by what, I, by what I'm not, like, I'm not an elder, I'm not a senior pastor, I'm not an assistant pastor, I'm not the children's ministry department, whatever you want to call it, I'm not the worship leader, I'm just the guy who teaches on Wednesday nights. And you try to explain that to somebody who comes from like a really structured church background, and they don't get it. They're like, so you're like the teaching pastor? No, 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 I'm just the guy who teaches on Wednesday nights. So you're like the worship leader? No, 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 I'm just a guy, right? And that's what Amos is. Amos is a guy, he's just doing his thing. And the Lord says, Amos, you look available. Congratulations, you're on the team. Go, prophesy. And you know what? Every single stinking one of us in this room tonight gets the same call from the Lord. The Lord says, you, you look available, right? And you say, no, I'm actually not. He says, no, you actually are. Uh, congratulations, you're on the team. Go, right? So none of us can pass off doing the work of the Lord because we're all call. Paul says, again, in Ephesians, some of us, uh, he says, the Lord called some to be pastors, prophets, evangelists, and teachers, I think. And he says it's, and there are specific roles within the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So who's doing the work of the ministry? The saints. What's the purpose of anybody who's in any sort of church leadership? To equip the saints so that they can do their ministry. Anytime somebody says, well, that's the pastor's job, then uh, that person has misunderstood their role in the kingdom of God and their pastor's role in the kingdom of God. Because if there's a job to do, if there's work, 
in the ministry, if there's work in the service of the Lord, whose job is it? Ours. Any single one of us who can serve the Lord, it's our job. So if you're a shepherd, if you're a fig picker, or if you're whatever it is you are, right? The Lord said, go prophesy to my people Israel. We all get picked and chosen, and that's, that's just the way it rolls. The Lord says, awesome, go, you're good. Uh, and then again, a lot of these minor prophets end with the promise of the millennial kingdom. At the end of the Great Tribulation, Jesus comes back. He lands on the Mount of Olives, and we, can, we won't get into it tonight. We may not get into it for the whole year, because we may not have time. But uh, we're given very specific details about the final battle there when Jesus comes down at the end of the Great Tribulation. Satan is chained up for a thousand years. Jesus is ruling on earth, and that's when we're told that the guy who dies at 100 years old, people are going to feel like maybe he was cursed, because long will be so... Longevity will be such a thing. That's when we're told that the lion will lie down with the lamb and the kids will be playing with the snakes. And it's the millennial kingdom. It's when Jesus Christ is reigning on earth. Okay? And so most of these minor prophets end with that promise and that reminder. And so uh, chapter 9, verse 13, as the book's wrapping up, Amos says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The Lord says, I am going to bless you guys so much that the guy who's plowing the field is going to bump into the guy who's still harvesting. Because you're going to have so many crops. Okay, just think of it in our cycle here. Okay, we start harvesting. We'll say we start harvesting in September. It's, it's bigger season than that, but broadly. So you're going to be harvesting from September until planting season. Because you're going to be producing, the earth is going to be producing so much abundance because the Lord is going to bless the land. We're told about the healing of the nations and, and it's, there's all these just incredible promises about the millennial kingdom. It's going to be phenomenal. But the Lord is reminding them in the midst of all this judgment, hey, I still have a plan. Right? Just like in Joel, the Lord is still in control of his army. The Lord is still in charge. The Lord is still working things out. So what do you do? If you've sinned, you repent. If you're saved, you ask for the Holy Spirit. And then, if you're anybody and everybody, you go do the work in the ministry. That's what we do. And then lastly, as we're wrapping up, we get to the book of Obadiah tonight. Obadiah is one of the five-ish shortest books in the Bible. I was trying to count it up this morning. And I think there's only, I think there's five books in the Bible that only have one chapter. If you come up with a six, let me know. But I think there's only five. And Obadiah is one of them. So it's one of the five shortest books in the Bible. And Obadiah is this one-chapter prophecy against the nation of Edom. If you can go back in your mind to Genesis, all right, you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, and then Isaac has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob eventually gets renamed Israel, and his descendants are known as the Israelites. Esau eventually gets renamed Edom, and his descendants are the Edomites. Now, the promise of God to Abraham passed through Jacob. It passed to the Israelites. But the Lord still wanted to honor his relationship with Edom, and so he was very specific to the Israelites to say, hey, the Edomites are your family. Now, he's saying, don't be influenced by them. Don't go marrying them, but uh, you are not supposed to conquer them. You're not supposed to conquer their land. You leave them alone. Let them do their thing because I want to have a chance to have a relationship with them. So Israel was not allowed to conquer Edom's land. Edom should have reciprocated, and they didn't. And so Edom specifically, when the Babylonians came in and conquered 
Judah and Jerusalem, Edom teamed up with the Babylonians to help conquer Judah. And the Lord took that very seriously. The Lord said, no, no, you don't do that to my chosen people, right? And so Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom. And uh, so verse 10, he says, the nice thing about a book like Obadiah is you don't have to say chapter whatever, verse 10, because it's all chapter one, right? So verse 10 says, because of violence to your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, you know, God's saying, hey, I'm talking to you. Uh, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down the fugitives. Do not imprison their survivors in the day of distress. The Lord says, I will destroy you because when the foreigners entered the gates of Jerusalem, you were there. When you guys were guarding the roads to capture all the Israelites who were trying to escape and then turn them over to the Babylonians. You were rolling dice to see who could take what wealth. And I take that seriously. The Lord has always taken the nation of Israel very seriously. He told Abraham back in Genesis, I'm going to bless whoever blesses you and I will curse whoever curses you. Right? So if you want to experience the blessing of God in your life, find the way to bless the Jewish people. Right? Now, logistically, the most practical way you can do that is by honoring the word of God. Because you're honoring the God of the Jewish people. Right? And so, uh, Edom, you know, so he says, it's a, great, it's a great little reminder for us in the context of Israel specifically, but much more broadly, right? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. It doesn't matter who you have a grudge against. It doesn't matter what they've done to you. It really doesn't. If you are happy when somebody gets theirs, then you are walking in sin. You are sinning against someone that God created, and the Lord takes that very seriously. And so we see that uh, in the context of Edom and their relationship with Israel. Uh, but in verse 17, it says, On Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possession. So Obadiah, just like most of the other minor prophets, switches into this prophecy about the end of time because the Lord uses it as sort of a catalyst, like, hey, there's going to be other nations during the Great Tribulation who do exactly to Israel then what what Edom did to Israel way back then. And so he's describing the day of the Lord. He says, on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. He's saying, it doesn't matter who gangs up against the Israelites. It does not matter who tries to wipe out the Jewish people. They are going to escape, right? No one has ever successfully wiped out the Jewish people. And you, and you can try and call it a fluke of history until you realize, uh, you know, most of us have probably either met a Jewish person or seen a Jewish person or at least seen a picture of a Jewish person in our life, right? You can sort of picture the black hat, the braids, the beard, right? None of us have seen an Edomite, ever. None of us have seen a Hittite. Uh, I don't think any of us have ever seen a Sidonian or a Moabite or an Ammonite or an Amorite. Uh, I sure haven't. Right? I mean, Madison's not exactly New York City, but nonetheless, uh, where are they? They're gone. 
Right? The Lord has preserved Israel and he will continue to preserve Israel. No one will ever successfully come against God's people. And so he's saying here, you know, same context, the Lord is still in control and he says they're going to possess their possessions. At some point in time, Israel is going to possess all the land God promised them. They've never taken all the land that God promised Abraham initially. You can map it out and Israel has never had all of that land. And at some point in time, God will make sure that they get it all. And so... At the end of the book of Obadiah, same as at the end of Joel and Amos and really the whole scriptures, the Lord is in control. Still. He's in control during judgment, when he's warning people, when he's pouring out his Holy Spirit, when he's calling each and every one of us to ministry, he's in control. Right? And in the midst of that, tonight as we're looking for where do we look for application? Well, there's a ridiculous amount of application to be had here. But... uh, you know, as it pertains to sort of New Testament Christianity and understanding what the resurrection of Jesus Christ has done for us, uh, we remember that the Holy Spirit is still present and offered for us today. And so we want to live with that awareness. We want to live with the understanding and the expectation that we are in the last days and that the Holy Spirit has been poured out and he is available. His power is totally accessible to each and every single one of us. And what do you have to do for it? Ask. That's it. Jesus said, ask, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So if we lack the Holy Spirit in our lives, what do we do? We ask for it. Right? And in the meantime, God is still in control. Right? So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is still incredibly relevant to us, uh, even 2,800 years after it was written down. And just the amazing genius uh, and the amazing divinity that you, you brought to it to, to make it relevant across all time. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we would take it seriously, that we would live like your word matters. We do pray that you would help us to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to be sent out as saints on mission, as people who are ready to live missional lives, ready to live out the promise and the hope and, and the, the richness that we have in you. So we just pray all this in your name, God. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.